0: Welcome back to the American History Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the rise of the suburban era in American history from about 1945 to 1963. So, starting off with, uh, we're going to see suburban growth really grow and accelerate at the end of World War II. And during the 1950s, we see suburbs are growing 40 times faster than cities. So, by 1960, half of the American people live in suburbs. And we see this return in prosperity for the economy brings a baby boom. And there's going to be a need for new housing. Automobiles are going to be making the suburbs accessible. and But the spurt in suburban growth is going to take its toll on the cities, which suffer as the middle class starts leaving these urban areas. So the Great Depression had caused a lot of couples to delay beginning a family. In the 1930s, we see the birth rate is going to reach its lowest point in American history about 18 to 19 per 1000 people as prosperity returns during the war, we see birth rates begin to rise. By 1952, the birth rate is going to pass 25 per 1000 to reach one of the highest fertility rates in the world. New brides are going to be younger, which translates into increased fertility. New br- or Americans are going to be choosing also to have larger families. The number with three children is going to triple. Those with four or more quadruple. So historians and demographers, they have been very hard pressed to explain, you know, this big population bulge. And it's not going to be just limited to the United States. Uh, we see Australia, New Zealand, Britain, West Germany and are big among them in the early 1960s. But the long-term trend in American fertility rates is going to be downward, just like it was in other industrialized countries. So So single family houses with lawns they require a lot of open land unlike row houses that were just built side by side in urban developments so that means that uh developers like Levitt who was a uh, William Levitt he was known for building like these suburbs called Levitt Levitt towns but uh, Levitt and some other builders they're going to be choosing vacant areas outside major urban centers. So with the new houses further from the factories, offices, and jobs, automobile is going to become more indispensable than ever. And as the population shifts to the suburbs, traffic is going to be congesting the old country roads. So to help ease that congestion, the Eisenhower administration is going to propose a 20-year plan to build a massive interstate highway system. To get support, Eisenhower is going to address Cold War fears as well, saying the new system is going to help cities evacuate in the case of nuclear attack. In 1956, Congress will pass the National Interstate and Defense Highways Act, setting in motion the largest public works project in history. So the federal government is going to pick up 90% of the cost through a highway trust fund financed on special taxes on cars, gas, tires, lubricants, and auto parts. So the act had an enormous impact on American life. We're going to see annual driving increases, shopping centers with new roads. So it provides suburbanites with an alternative to the longer trip downtown. We're going to see almost every community has at least one highway strip dotted with stores, bowling alleys, gas stations, and drive-in restaurants. But these interstates are going to be affecting cities in less fortunate ways. So the new highway system features beltways, these ring roads around the major urban areas. So instead of leading traffic, downtown, the beltways allow motorists to avoid the city altogether. So as people took to their cars, we see intercity rail service and mass transit goes down. 75% of all government transportation dollars is going to go to subsidize travel by car and truck. At the same time, middle class homeowners were going to be moving to the suburbs. Many low paying unskilled jobs just disappear from the city. So it forces the urban poor into reverse commuting from city to suburb so all these trends made cities less attractive places to live or do business in with falling property values city governments lack the tax base to finance public services and we see a big cycle that ensues that proves most damaging to the urban poor who have very few means of escape So, with the spread of suburbs come some other growing pains. In late summer of 1956, residents of Portuguese Bend California learned a painful lesson about septic systems and hillside development. So, houses along Palos Verdes Drive South began to slide. Slowly at first, by October, 156 houses along with their lawns, gardens, and swimming pools had gently slumped downhill as though they were like pudding, almost. And over time, the... effluent like the stuff coming out from septic systems assisted by lawn watering, it slicked the underlying layers of shales that tilted toward the ocean. And with no friction to hold the soil and shale in place, the gravity just kind of did the rest. And we see suburbs in Washington, D.C., Cincinnati, Pittsburgh that suffer similar landslide disasters. Other misfortunes happen when developers built in wetlands and on floodplains. So, the disappearance of open space confronts a lot of suburbanites with another threat to their dreams. So, uh, we see gone are habitats for birds, small mammals, fish, amphibians. During the suburban boom, home builders seldom took the environment into account. Few rural areas had zoning or building codes that restricted where... And how much they could build. Less open space meant more houses. To lower land purchase costs, developers leveled hillsides, filled the wetlands, ignore flood dangers. To lower construction costs, they cleared mature trees and vegetation and scrimped on energy-efficient insulation. Cost to homeowners and the environment wasn't apparent at first. And early suburbanites worried more about finding a home of their own at a price they can afford, and years later the desire to preserve, you know, a shred of that dream would contribute to the movement to protect the environment. There's gonna be a new technology that uh, takes place within the culture of suburbia. So we see a rise in American civil religion, like uh, Catholics, Protestants, Jews uh, generally marrying their own faith. In the suburbs, they kept their social distance as well. Communities don't really show any class distinctions, um, but were sometimes very deeply divided along religious lines. And we see uh, religious affiliation starts to divide the nation along social and residential Line So religion becomes a very uh, essential part of their lives in the suburban era. Very patriotic and anti-communist themes are going to be strong with preaching of clergy. uh, With television, like uh, the revival preacher, the Baptist revival preacher, Billy Graham. He first attracts national attention in a tent meeting in L.A. in 1949. And we're going to see he gets an even wider impact by televising his meetings. see, homemaking women as well. Uh, some will get other jobs out of, uh, financial necessity, right? But there are a lot of more women that, uh, want to be, you know, housewives. You know, there's a lot of women going to college, you know, the increased education doesn't translate to economic equality, um, 'cause work is women's work is primarily segregated by gender still. So with television, uh the new technology it's gonna spread only widely after World War Two. So in nineteen forty nine, just to put it in perspective, only a million Americans Americans only only a million television, sorry. Uh, by 1960, more Americans, about 46 million, have televisions than they have bathrooms. And attendance starts dropping at movie theaters and sports arenas. Downtown theaters are going to close. Popular uh, suburban drive-ins are going to allow whole families to enjoy movies in the comfort of their cars. Uh, even that novelty fails to draw viewers away from their televisions. So the Eisenhower presidency. So Eisenhower, you know, raised in large Kansas farm family parents, uh, even though they were poor, uh, offered a very caring home steeped in religious faith. And then, uh, Eisenhower is going to succeed by mastering the military's bureaucratic politics. Uh, so in the years between the two world wars, uh, the skills he demonstrates at golf, poker, bridge often prove uh, just as valuable as his military expertise. Uh, they can't hide his ambition or his ability to judge character very shrewdly. He becomes a gifted organizer to coordinate the D-Day invasion along with Patton and to hold together the egocentric allied generals that push East to Berlin. And as president, he's going to support a lot of New Deal programs. Uh, he does agree to increases in Social Security and employment insurance and the minimum wage. He accepts a small public housing program and even a modest federally supported medical insurance plan for the needy. But as a conservative, he remains uncomfortable with big government. So he rejects uh, more far-reaching liberal proposals on housing and universal health care through the Social Security system. And FDR and Truman had established a tradition of activism. So when the economy faltered, they used deficit spending and tax cuts to stimulate it. Eisenhower preferred to reduce federal spending and the government's role in the economy. When a recession struck in 1953-54, to the administration is going to be more concerned with balancing the budget and holding inflation in line than with reducing unemployment through government spending. And despite several recessions and his own uncertain health, Eisenhower's is going to remain very popular. He doesn't roll out spending, you know, and some of the other government areas like the Highway Act. Uh, he's going to sign the St. Lawrence Seaway Act so it joins the U.S. and Canada and a big engineering program to open up the Great Lakes to ocean shipping. So, you know, things that are fiscally acceptable because the fee- funding is going to come from user tolls and taxes than from general revenues for him. So, Yeah, he tended to be a very popular president. Even got campaign buttons and posters saying, I like Ike. But there are some critics of all this mass culture going around. So... um, Some people think, you know, America is turning into a vast suburban wasteland where their neighbors worry over things like capri pants. Uh, Somebody may have thought they were like pajamas instead, but they're capri pants uh, because that might stifle individuality, you know, because they're questioning all these things. So many highbrow intellectuals derided the homogenized lifestyle created by all this mass consumption that's kind of repeating a lot of the trends from the 1920s. Uh, but all this conformity mass media as well. So, critics like Dwight McDonald they attack the culture of the suburban middle classes. There's going to be a uh, couple of Reader's Digest articles and stuff, but other critics say skyscrapers and factories of giant conglomerates they house an impersonal world, right. So not many people are liking you know what's going on in our country at this time. And young Americans are going to be among suburbia's sharpest critics: dance crazes, outlandish clothing, slang, rebelliousness, and sexual precociousness that all these behaviors challenge middle class respectability. So, and more than a few educators are going to warn that America had spawned a generation of rebellious juvenile delinquents. The center of the new teen culture is going to be the high school. Whether in consolidated rural school districts, new suburban schools or city systems, the large comprehensive high schools of the 1950s were often miniature melting pots where middle class students were exposed to and often adopted the style of the lower classes. They wore jeans and t shirts, they challenged authority, defiantly smoked cigarettes. Uh, in many ways the debate over juvenile delinquency was an argument about social class and to a lesser degree race. When adults complained that delinquent teenagers dressed poorly, lack of ambition, were irresponsible and sexually promiscuous, these were the same arguments traditionally used to denigrate other outsiders. Immigrants, the poor, African Americans. Nowhere were these racial and class undertones more evident than in the hue and cry that greeted the arrival of rock and roll. So before 1954, popular music had been divided into three major categories. Pop, country, and western, and then rhythm and blues. So a handful of major record companies dealt almost exclusively with white singers and they dominated the pop charts. On one fringe of the popular feel was country and western, often split with like cowboy musicians like Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, and then the more hillbilly style that was associated with Nashville. And then Rhythm and blues was generally treated as race music, whose performers and audiences were largely black. And as the West and South are going to merge into the national culture, all these musical subcultures are going to gradually integrate into the national mainstream, right? Um, Elvis Presley, he is going to be the big guy. Like, we see some of the blending of the music with country and Western singer Bill Haley that uh, blends... Some of this with Shake, Rattle, and Roll. It's the first rock song to reach the top 10 on the pop charts. But Elvis with his hip swinging performances that's going to really electrify teenage audiences. He's got long hair, sideburns, tight jeans, uh, menacingly delinquent. You know, this all seems, you know, a very open expression of hostile rebellion. But Eisenhower, he's not going to have a whole lot of good things going on, right? There's going to be the major uh, superpowers taking off. Uh, So, uh, 1953, Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin dies, and the power then falls to Nikita Khrushchev. Uh, Khrushchev is... um, Like Truman, unsophisticated, yet shrewd, uh, earthy sense of humor, energetic, short-tempered, largely inexperienced in international affairs. And Khrushchev keeps American diplomats off balance. He moderates some of the excesses of the Stalin years. Uh, He starts gradually shifting the Soviet economy towards productionist consumer goods. Uh, He calls for an easing of tensions and reduced forces in Europe, hoping to weaken Western European dependence on the United States. And uh, Winston Churchill is going to suggest the Russians might be serious about negotiating. You know, there were a lot of conservatives in the U.S. that keep the spirit of McCarthyism alive. But in 1955, the Americans, British, French, and Soviets meet in a conference at Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, Little comes at the summit, but the meeting does hint at a cooling in the arms race. That can be possible. But there's going to be a lot of nationalism unleashing in uh, the Middle East. And... Uh, When a potentially pro-Soviet nationalist government in Iran ousted the Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, who was a very firm ally of the U.S., Eisenhower is going to support a covert CIA operation in 1953 to remove the nationalist leader and restore the Shah. Eisenhower and Dulles also worry about the actions of Egyptian leader Gamal Abdel Nasser. And Dulles, Secretary of State Dulles, he promised American aid to help Nasser build the Aswan Dam, a massive irrigation project on the Nile River. But when Nasser formed an Arab alliance against the young state of Israel and pursued economic ties with the Warsaw Bloc, Dulles withdrew that American offer. And Nasser is going to seize the Universal Suez Canal Company in 1956. And the company ran the waterway through which tankers carried most of Europe's oil. And it's a British-owned company, too. So, events kind of happen quickly after this. Israel is going to invade the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt. And it's going to happen on October 29th, the same day Hungary is going to announce it's leaving the Warsaw Pact. Three days later, French and British forces seize the canal. And angry at all of this, Eisenhower is going to join the Soviet Union in supporting a UN resolution condemning the attacks and demanding an immediate ceasefire. So by December, American pressures force Britain and France to remove their forces. And so there's a lot of strain on the Western alliance on the Suez crisis. So at the same time, Nasser demonstrated a potential force of third world nationalism. So, and it's not just in the Middle East like this is going on. And in Cuba, uh, there's going to be national forces very uh, fervent in Latin America. So, in 1954, Eisenhower is going to authorize the CIA to send a band of Latin American mercenaries into Guatemala to overthrow a national government there. Similar economic tensions beset Cuba, where the U.S. owned 80% of the country's utilities and operated a major de- naval base at Guantanamo Bay. And a determined revolutionary nationalist, Fidel Castro, he gained the support of impoverished peasants in Cuba's mountains. And in January of 1959, they drove the deeply corrupt and pro-American dictator from power. And at first, many Americans applaud the revolution, welcoming Castro when he visited the United States. But Eisenhower was distinctly cool to the cigar-smoking Cuban, who had filled key government positions with communists, launched a sweeping agricultural reform, and confiscated American properties. Retaliating, Eisenhower's going to embargo human sugar and mobilize opposition to Castro and other Latin American countries. So now he's cut off from the United States, so Castro's going to look to the Soviet Union. So, Castro's turn to the Soviets seems all the more dangerous because Soviet achievements in their missile program. So, in 1957, they're going to orbit the first space satellite, Sputnik. So, by 1959, Soviets had crash-landed a much larger payload on the moon. And if the Russians can target the moon, they can launch nuclear missiles against America. So the American space program suffered a lot of delays and mishaps that rockets kept exploding on launch. And so they were nicknamed like Flopniks or Kaputniks. And uh, how had the Soviets managed to catch up with American technology so quickly? So some Americans blamed the schools, especially weak programs in science and math. So in 1958... So, the National Defense Education Act. So, this is going to be designed to strengthen graduate education and the teaching of science, math, and foreign languages. So, crash programs to build basement fallout shelters sought to protect Americans in case of a nuclear attack as well. So, a whole lot's kind of going on. Once Eisenhower leaves, he's going to warn against the military industrial complex, he calls it. So, um... Basically a combination of the U.S. armed forces, arms manufacturers, and associated political and commercial interests that grows very rapidly during the Cold War era. So the biggest issue of the 1960 campaign campaign is social as well as political. So Jack Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, he's a Roman Catholic out of Boston, Irish family. No Catholic had ever been elected president before this. And then you have the former Vice President, Richard Nixon. He ran on his political experience and reputation as a big anti-communist. But uh, we're going to see the first televised uh, presidential debate between them at this time. So when Kennedy comes to office, what's it like during the uh, Cold War? So... Pretty quickly he is going to uh try to take back Cuba by sending a group of Cuban exiles that but they tr- they're not very heavily armed or anything, and so they try to invade Cuba and they fail. And then we're gonna have the Cuban Missile Crisis. So his negotiations with uh, Khrushchev at that time. This is the closest we ever came to actual nuclear war at this time. So um, things are going to kick off in Vietnam as well. There's communists are taking over. And the Kennedy administration, they encourage the military to stage a coup. And they capture the leader in Godin Diem. But then they're going to shoot him. And so, Kennedy, he didn't think that was going to happen. And now he sees, well, the U.S. is now entangled in a Vietnamese civil war. And there's no clear strategy of winning this. Uh, But with the Cuban Missile Crisis, this is where we get the term mutually assured destruction. So, basically how it came to be was, you know, if you take off us... You know, if you take us out, we'll take you out as well. So, yeah, lots of tensions going on. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed it, got the gist of what's all going on. And have a good day.